Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The relationship between art and religion is almost without exception very strong and significant. Almost basically any religion that you can possibly think of has some sort of artistic expression associated with it, whether that be the architecture of religious buildings or idols and statues, poetry or other forms of literature and, and so on. Um, another very prominent of these artistic expressions and one of my main fields of interest is, of course, also music. Music is called a universal language, one that has been used by basically every culture in some form. Everything from rock concerts to uh, military parades or religious ceremonies, uh, music is everywhere in the world in different cultures. And the Muslim world is no exception. Today, there's a lot of different music coming out of the so-called Islamic world. Uh, a lot of us have heard the songs by Umm Kulthum, or Fayrouz, or Cheb Khaled. There are love songs, uh, pop songs, there is religious nasheed music about the Prophet Muhammad, there is political hip-hop, and even metal music, all of this coming out of the Islamic world or the Middle East. And this diversity has existed historically as well. Music was very much present in the early Muslim community. We know fairly little about the first hundred years or so after the Prophet Muhammad's death, but there seems, from the sources we have, there certainly seems to have been many musicians in Mecca and Medina. Many of these were women who would sing and play instruments at different kinds of gatherings. Music was also often used to accompany poetry, which was very strong of a tradition in the region since long before the Prophet Muhammad. The tradition of music was strongly connected to poetry in pre-Islamic Arabia, and this also continued in later periods. 
Instruments like the frame drum or flutes and possibly also ouds or lutes were probably used to accompany singing of poems of different sorts. The word used to refer to music at this time was rina, which literally means singing, and so this shows you that music was primarily a vocal art, uh, used to uh, sing certain poems, and was sometimes accompanied by instruments, but not always. According to later sources, the first famous male musician from this region is a man by the name of Tuwais, who would sing and accompany himself by playing the duff drum. He lived in Medina uh, shortly after the Prophet's death. There is also an individual by the name Ibn Misjah, who was an early composer and music theorist, expanding the melodic and modal horizons of the music of the Arabs at the time. As the Muslim empire expanded under the Umayyad caliphs, um, a lot of influence was taken from uh, neighboring regions and, of course, local traditions from the lands that were conquered. So Mesopotamia and Persia and North Africa and so on. Many of the Umayyad caliphs appear to have been great lovers of music and there developed a kind of uh, tradition of court music that would continue as these centuries went by. In some of the early art, like in the Umayyad desert castles, there are depictions of musicians. It may be surprising to some of you to see depictions of human beings and animals in Islamic art, but we must remember to avoid sort of projecting later opinions backward in history. These images are very early, during Umayyad times and only a few decades after the Prophet Muhammad's death, and the debate on depictions of humans probably wasn't decided at all at this point. It's never really been decided, but especially not this early on. After the Abbasid Revolution in 750 and during their caliphate, which is often referred to as the Golden Age, music really developed into a sophisticated art form. Uh, musicians from Persia and other regions brought with them, of course, local musical traditions that merged with the Arabic tradition to create, sort of give it new life and create new uh, sophisticated forms of music. And of course, there were also influences taken from the Greek tradition, Greek philosophy, and many other ideas that were being uh, sort of syncretized and developed in the Abbasid uh, Caliphate in, in Baghdad and in other regions. Music during this period, especially theoretically, but also practically, uh, became an important part of higher education in certain strata of society. It was almost obligatory for the learned elite to learn music. The caliphs gathered around them very talented musicians who would frequent the courts. And some of the most famous of these early musicians include a man by the name of Ishaq al-Mausili and his father Ibrahim al-Mausili. They were both of Persian origin and served in the court of the very famous caliph Harun al-Rashid, and thus they lived sometime around the late 8th to early 9th centuries. It is said that Ishaq al-Mausili wrote over 40 treatises about music and had a vast knowledge in different fields. But perhaps the most famous and significant of early Abbasid musicians was a man who is known by the name Ziryab, which means blackbird and may have referred to his skin tone. Um, his actual name was Abul Hassan Ali ibn Nafi and was from modern-day Iraq. He also lived and worked in the bustling capital Baghdad and was the pupil of the previously mentioned Ishaq al-Mausli during the reign of Harun al-Rashid. 
At some point, however, he left the Abbasid court and traveled west. Some say this was because a beef erupted between him and his master Ishaq al-Mausili, but others say it was because al-Ma'mun deposed his brother al-Amin as, as a caliph and he had to flee because of that. But I think the former option is a lot more funny, so we'll consider that canon. In any case, Ziryab eventually arrives in al-Andalus, what is modern Spain, which was ruled by the Umayyad dynasty in Spain at the height of their power at the time. Uh, the sitting caliph or ruler Abdurrahman II appears to have been a great lover of music, as was his successors, and so Zirya was able to establish himself as a very respected musician in that region as well. Ziryab was given a very warm welcome into the court of musicians in Spain, including by a guy named Al-Mansur the Jew, who was, in fact, Jewish. Stories tell of how Ziryab revolutionized the musical tradition in Cordoba and almost single-handedly developed a sophisticated culture of court music in Spain. Whether or not this is true is hard to say, of course, but it seems from most sources that Ziryab was a very talented musician who influenced the music culture of Al-Andalus significantly, bringing with him influences from Baghdad and opening a school of music in Cordoba. This may have been the first, or at least one of the first, schools of music in all of Europe. Here he would train students in music, both singing and playing instruments like the oud, and both men and women. In fact, women, albeit mostly slave women, played a very important role in the music culture of Al-Andalus in Ziryab's time, as well as other parts of the Muslim world too. These women were often instrumental, upon absolutely intended, in composition and also in teaching music to others. So with the establishment of this school of music in Cordoba, there now existed three main centers of music in the so-called Muslim world at the time. This is the 9th century. One in Cordoba, one in Baghdad, and one in Medina, the city of the Prophet. Ziryab was a master of the oud, the Arabic lute, and is said to have also added a fifth string to the instrument. But the same invention is also attributed to Al-Kindi and Al-Farabi, so who really knows who did it? In any case, in the following centuries, there would develop a very distinct Andalusian and North African musical form, which would differ somewhat from the more eastern forms of music in Baghdad and other regions. And a lot of this kind of music is attributed to Ziryab and his influence. In Andalusian and Moroccan music, such as the traditional Nuba suite, Muwashah, Sajal, and other genres, we can hear clear influences from both Arabic and Persian music mixed with the local traditions of the African Berber tribes and the Spaniards. It's hard to know what the music back then actually sounded like, as no music was actually written down. Even though the lines between styles and genres of music is of course very blurry, there was a very distinct form of music that developed in Spain and North Africa at the time. Being a very multicultural region, as well as being a relatively tolerant and open culture, the music that was developed during the Muslim rule would greatly develop later European classical and traditional music forms, which can still be heard today, especially in genres like flamenco. A somewhat coherent musical tradition had thus developed in Muslim lands by the 9th century, even if, of course, there were regional differences. And the development of its very rich tradition would only continue going forward in history. As I mentioned earlier, music was often a very important part of higher education. It was seen as a kind of philosophy and connected to cosmological, religious, and metaphysical ideas. This becomes especially apparent as the individuals who would mostly carry forward the musical tradition, at least theoretically, is actually the philosophers of the falsafa tradition. 
In fact, whereas music and its science was transmitted primarily orally at this time, the first actual writings about music in the Arabic or Muslim world in general comes from the very famous 9th century philosopher Al-Kindi. He's known as the first Arabic philosopher and was a brilliant polymath in the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. He translated Greek texts into Arabic and wrote treatises on logic, astronomy, ethics, psychology, and music, among many more. Several of his works were on music, and in which he develops a musical theory that was partly based on the Greek tradition. In these writings, he talks about the oud, the lute, how it should be tuned, string length, and so on. He talks about scales and octaves, rhythms, compositional techniques, the best way to practice music, and so on. Al-Kindi is a very significant figure, not just in the history of philosophy, but also in the development of music theory and Arabic music generally. To the philosophers, music was often subsumed under the larger scientific category of mathematics, believe it or not, and was often treated as such. The rhythms and modes have very intricate rules that are connected to, among other things, Neoplatonic philosophical ideas that were very popular at the time. His successors in the philosophical tradition followed suit. Uh, the philosopher Al-Farabi, for example, wrote a book called Kitab al-Musiqa al-Kabir, which means the great book of music, in which he further develops the ideas that Al-Kindi had, had theorized. Um, this book is one of the most significant works about music generally in the medieval Muslim world, and I think in world history, and there is no actual translation of it into English. This is something that I look forward to either someone else or maybe myself during at some point in the future. This is a very important work. Uh, another very famous philosopher, Ibn Sina, devoted a large portion of his book Al-Shifa, The Healing, to music, and even the Ikhwan al-Safa, the Brethren of Purity, dedicated an entire epistle in their great work uh, on, uh, or dedicated this to music specifically. So you can see that music was a very prominent part of philosophy. As you can tell then, many of these great scholars and philosophers were often musicians themselves, which shows you what an important position it had in certain circles of society and confirms my previous point that it was an important part of higher education. At this time, these philosophers and musicians developed the Arabic music theory that to some degree survives to this day. They talked about theories of scales, or what will become maqam theory, uh, the musical modes in Arabic music, and iqa, or rhythms, and how they are connected in different kinds of genres and styles of music. There's a lot of stuff in here. Quite telling of these kinds of texts is the epistle dedicated to the science of music by the Ikhwan al-Safa, or the Brethren of Purity, in which they compare the art of music to other forms of art, in a very, I think, beautiful section. Quote, You should know, dear brother, may God aid you and us with the spirit of his, that in every manual craft the matter dealt with consists of naturally occurring material, and that all of its products are physical forms. The exception is music, for the matter it deals with consists entirely of spiritual substances, namely the souls of those who listen to it. In other words, whereas a painter works with a brush and paint, the sculptor works with stone and the cook works with food, for example, that which the musician works with and shapes are the souls of other individuals. I just absolutely love this description and this comparison. 
They go on to explain that music has many different functions and effects on the human being. It can inspire them to work harder, inspire them to fight in a battle, it can make them happy, sad, contemplative. Basically, music has the capability of affecting the souls of human beings in a very strong way. Quote, it is clear from what we have expounded that the art of music has differing effects on the soul of the listeners, parallel to the differing effects of the arts of craftsmen on the material used in their craft. Because of this, all nations of humankind make use of it, as do many animals also. But above all, to the Ikhwan and many of these philosophers, music actually has a divine origin. To these philosophers, the beautiful sounds we hear in music are actually like a mirroring of the world of spirits. These beautiful sounds are a mirroring or a taste of the divine world of harmony and angels and all this. So when we hear music, we are getting a glimpse of a higher reality, of paradise and of the spiritual realm. In the harmony of music, we are witnessing the harmony and beauty of creation itself. And some Sufis would even say that we are getting a glimpse of God himself. But, of course, because of this, there was a lot of rules connected to music as well. Since music was connected to philosophical systems and ideas, the music needed to reflect this too. This is where these writers developed musical theories that are connected to Neoplatonic ideas about the spheres or the humors in the body or the elements in the world. To demonstrate this, we're going to talk about a specific instrument, which is the oud, or the lute. The oud was seen as the most exalted of instruments. All of these great philosophers and musicians basically played the oud. Ishaq al-Mausli played it, Ziryab played the oud, Al-Kindi played the oud, Al-Farabi, even Ibn Sina appears to have played the oud. They all played this instrument. Uh, Al-Kindi refers to the Oud as the instrument of philosophers. And Ibn Sina writes about the Oud in his book Al-Shifa, quote, If there is any instrument more noble than this, it is quite unknown to the practitioners of music. And the Ikhwan al-Safa has the following to say, quote, The most perfect instrument devised by the sages and the best of their creations is the instrument called the Oud, or lute. They then go on to describe how this instrument should be constructed, the sizes of the different parts, the strings, the pegs, and every minute little detail. Most of these philosophers did the same in their text, as this was very important, not only from a practical musical standpoint, but also from a philosophical one. Now the question whether this instrument has four strings or five strings or whatever may seem like a very trivial question, but it was actually a very strong point of contention at the time. Um, Ziryab, as I said, is credited with having added a fifth string to the instrument, and uh, the philosopher Al-Kindi appears also to have suggested the same idea, but in the writings of the Ikhwan al-Safa, they make it very clear that the number of strings on the oud has to be four, or the whole system is ruined. This is because the four strings represent the four elements of fire, air, water, and earth. The highest string, called zir, resembles the element of fire as well as that of heat and fierceness. The second string, mathna, resembles air and its softness. The third string, uh, called maslath, resembles water and its wetness and cold. And lastly, the lowest string, called bam, resembles the element of earth being very heavy and thick. Here we have a very strong connection, obviously, between uh, music theory and Aristotelian philosophy, as well as Neoplatonic philosophy to some degree, where certain notes and strings are given characteristics and placements within a larger cosmological scheme. 
And this is significant on a practical level as well. Uh, for those of you who know your medieval medicine, you know that people thought that the body consisted of four different humors that had to be in harmony with each other. And when you were sick, that meant that one of the humors were out of balance and all this. And so, not surprisingly, of course, the four strings of the oud aside from being connected to the different elements, were also connected to these bodily humors. And so the oud and music generally was used in a practical sense, in a medical sense as well. As I said earlier, everything is connected to these philosophers, so music for these individuals was not just a practical art and a system of harmony that corresponded and reflected harmony in creation and the spiritual realms, it also had connections to the very physical matter of the world. This is part of the way that music was used therapeutically and medically by these philosophers. They realized that music could be used to change the moods of individuals, but the theories goes even further than that. So different melodies or scales were used to solve different physical or mental problems. Some melodies could fix a depression, perhaps, and other melodies would help with an infection, and so on. Some of this may sound pretty strange to you, but keep in mind that there are people and scientists working even today uh, studying the way that music can affect our brains and our, our moods and our health generally, so there's clearly something very interesting here, and they had realized this even back then in the Middle Ages. So this is much of the basis of the musical theory that would develop in the Arabic and Persian and Turkish world. The uh, modal system, known as maqamat, are, is very much based on many of these theories. As you can tell, music was a very large subject and was, like today, used in many different contexts. There was vocal and instrumental court music used as entertainment for the caliphs and rulers. There was party music at weddings. There was music that was used for medical and therapeutic purposes. There was military music used in battle to rally the troops. Caravan music chanted by the camel drivers, the camel people. Uh, religious poetry being recited and sung. And of course, the mystical ritual music of the Sufis. The Sufis and their connection to music is incredibly significant. Uh, the earliest forms of Sufism in Baghdad in the 9th and 10th centuries appears to have used music as a ritual. This ritual became known as Sama, which is usually translated as audition, which literally means listening. Uh, and in this ritual, which has taken many different forms historically, music was used along with poetry and sometimes even uh, certain movements or kinds of dance to induce a kind of a trance or ecstasy. This was a very prominent part of religious practice and mystical uh, practices for the Sufis from early on and up to this day. Needless to say, music took on many different forms and was part of many different aspects of society. Now we should of course mention the controversies and different opinions regarding music at this time and later times that were held by different scholars and so on. Even if music was very common, obviously not everyone liked it or thought it was appropriate. There has, over the course of many centuries and since the early period of the Islamic religion or the Islamic civilization, been a great debate regarding the permissibility of listening to or playing music. We could speculate and trace the origins of this negative stance towards music to the fact that in the early period and even during the time of the Prophet Muhammad and before, music was often in the region very strongly associated with beautiful slave women playing at gatherings of rich, greedy rulers, often accompanied by things like drinking alcohol. 
alcohol. And so people would have a very negative association to music, at least certain forms of music. And we'll get to this soon. But because of this, music became very strongly associated with worldliness, drunkenness, and sexual promiscuity. The early jurists and, and Muslim scholars also, of course, realized that music had a very strong effect on human beings and their behavior. And so they wanted to, some of them at least, wanted to emphasize the dangers of music because of its strong effects on the human body. Which is, of course, in contrast to many other Sufis and other scholars who would emphasize that aspect as one of the, the more positive aspects of music. So it's a very interesting debate in that sense. I often hear people still claiming that Islam forbids music. And sure, there were many scholars back then who would hold very negative views towards music. But the situation was a lot more nuanced than that. Indeed, there were also many scholars who were not opposed to music, as we have seen in our discussions so far. The Sufis have used music throughout history as a religious practice to reach ecstasy and intimacy with God, often, as I said, called sama or audition, and thus made music an important part of religion. For every scholar that viewed music as prohibited, there were scholars like Ibn Sina, Ibn Rushd, or the Andalusian literalist Ibn Hazm, or Al-Ghazali, Abdul Ghani al-Nablusi, or Abdurrahman Jami, who all argued in a more nuanced way that music in itself isn't necessarily harmful. People back then weren't as rigid as people like to think, and it was never a black or white kind of situation. There was a whole spectrum of opinions and stances on this subject, from Sufi thinkers as well as non-Sufi scholars. Some viewing all music as prohibited and wrong, others viewing only vocal music as being okay, others think that certain instruments like drums and flutes are okay, but not string instruments, for example. Others even allowed all instruments, but only certain lyrics, and others basically viewed any music as fine. It literally is a whole spectrum of opinions. The very famous Sufi scholar Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, who was in favor of music, albeit limiting the instruments allowed, once famously wrote, quote, Whoever says that all music is prohibited, let him also claim that the songs of birds are prohibited. Regardless of your opinion, that's a great quote. <laughs> Discussions were not only had about certain instruments, but also different kinds of music as well. This is a very important point that a lot of people, especially today, forget that when we say music, that contains all kinds of music. But back then, different terms was used to denote different kinds of what we would call music today, and the opinions on these different kinds of music could differ dramatically. There's a great graph in an article by Louis Ibsen al-Faruqi that gives a generalizing look at the traditional attitudes towards different forms of music. There are certain genres that were almost always considered halal or permitted, including things like religious chants, wedding music and military music, work songs and so on. Then we have a category in which the opinions may differ or be more ambivalent. Some consider them permitted, others would be more skeptical or hostile. This includes composed art music, both vocal and instrumental, and music with pre-Islamic origins. The only category that most scholars have always agreed to be prohibited or forbidden is music with a strong sexual or sensual content or performed in certain contexts that are somehow unacceptable, perhaps uh, music being performed in relation to drinking alcohol, for example. 
As you can see, we now have a much more nuanced and less problematic picture of the situation. The scholar Amnon Shiloa writes, quote, In sum, the attitudes towards music has always been ambivalent, as expressed in a series of contradictory feelings and concepts. Predilection and mistrust, divine, devilish, exalting, disruptive, admissible, prohibited. This complexity and nuance should be kept in mind as we go forward. There have been scholars and jurists on both sides of the argument. In any case, music continued to develop in, in the Abbasid, in the Umayyad, and in the Fatimid, and all of these different dynasties that would appear, music continued to flourish and be developed in, in different ways. If music theory started with the philosopher Al-Kindi and then further developed over the centuries, it can be said to have culminated in a way around the time of the fall of the Abbasid Caliphate and with a man by the name of Safi ad-Din al-Urmawi. He lived in Baghdad during the reign of Caliphs al-Mustansir and al-Mustasim and would first-handedly witness the invasion of the Mongol army, the sacking of the historical great city of Baghdad and the execution of the last Abbasid Caliph. Being a very talented musician as well as a calligrapher, he was kept alive and continued to serve under the later Mongol rulers in the city as well. But before this very historical event, he had already written a book called the Kitab al-Adwar, the book of cycles, or modes basically, which would cement him as one of the most important and significant music theorists in history. Indeed, the musicologist Owen Wright says that, quote, there can be little doubt that the most influential of all Arabic treatises on music has been the Kitab al-Adwar. Hormawi was, perhaps unsurprisingly, an Oud player, and he wrote texts about the Oud, but it was in his systematization of music theory that he left his greatest mark in the history of music. He follows in the tradition of the previous philosophers, but systematizes the Arabic music theory in a way that has left its mark to this very day. In the Kitab al-Adwar, he talks about tetrachords, pentachords, and how they are played on various instruments. He also, very importantly, divides the octave into 17 intervals, and then starts to form modes out of these intervals. This, then, becomes the very first systematized version and classification of maqams in Arabic music, in a way, that the modal system that is still in use in Arabic and Turkish music today. He mentions the names of a few of these modes and maqams, most of which are still in use. Shiloa again comments, quote, an eminent theorist as well as musician, he achieved a systematization of the general scale and the whole modal system that was probably in practical use long before his time. I have some bad news, because unfortunately, with all of the musicians and great uh, uh, theorists that we have been talking about, None of this music actually survives today, uh, because music back then was never written down. There was no notation, everything was transmitted orally. But this is actually one of the other very significant things about Safedin al-Urmawi, because in his writings we find the, as far as we know, earliest example of actual musical notation. It is very rudimentary notation, and it isn't really songs per se, it's actually more of a kind of uh, exercise. He's notating an exercise for playing the oud and for singing. But nonetheless, this would sort of pave the way for later Ottoman writers who would actually create a system of music notation for uh, the uh, Middle Eastern world. 
Well, these notations are very hard to play and, as I said, amount to no more than simple exercises and, and sh very short melodies, there have been attempts to actually recreate and record some of these melodies, albeit with a very heavy dose of uh, interpretation and improvisation. Ormawi and his Kitab al-Adwar is referred to and referenced for m years afterwards in all regions from India to Spain, uh, the tradition that was started by Al-Kindi can be said in a way to culminate with Al-Urmawi in this sense, but that is not to say that music did not continue to develop afterwards. Instead, we could see it as a kind of turning point, or a very important uh, central uh, point for the development of music theory. Uh, when talking about the great philosopher Ibn Sina, one sometimes divides is a Muslim philosophy into pre-Ibn Sina and after Ibn Sina. Of course, it didn't end with Ibn Sina, but it's a very important turning point. I think the same kind of um, view can be used uh, about Urmawi, that there's a pre-Urmawi music and a post-Urmawi music. In the next part of the series, which I'm planning, we will talk about the post-Abbasid era of Islamic music, everything from the composer Abdul Qadir al-Maraghi uh, to Amir Khusro in India to the Ottoman music and the music of the Mevlevi order, which are very strongly connected. I'll see you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.